Welcome to NHSR Podcast. I've long since stopped giving them numbers because they come out in a funny order. This one will come out uh, when it's ready, frankly. So we have a special episode today that was talked about in a previous podcast with uh, Jess Morley. So we're going to be talking today about the Goldacre Review. We've got various people from across health and social care to talk about their particular take on it. And in order to give me a chance to rant freely without feeling bad about my guests, I've actually got a co-host to sort of do the uh, keep the conversation going. Um, so he'll introduce himself in a moment. Just for those of you who don't know what NHSR is, so uh, this is the NHSR podcast. The NHSR is a community of analysts and data scientists in uh, UK health and social care. We use open source data science tools. We're particularly keen on R, obviously, hence the name. But we're also very friendly to other languages like Python and anything else that comes along, such as Julia. We like to use open source data science tools, but we also like to share our analytic code. And of course, the Goldacre Review, as any of you who with any familiarity will know, has got much to say on a lot of these subjects. So hence the uh, hence why we're talking about it today. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Fraser, who can then uh, introduce everyone else. Thank you, Chris. Um, so I'm Fraser Batty from the Strategy Unit. I seem to spend a lot of my time being an imposter in amongst uh, analyst audiences. I, I should out my complete lack of analytical credentials uh, right at the outset, just so uh, just so no confusion is caused. Um, but my team, the Strategy Unit, is of course known for its analytical uh, expertise, and hopefully we're pushing on a lot of what we'll be talking about topic-wise today um, from within the NHS. My role today really in the podcast is just to allow uh, Chris and uh, and the other guests to speak. Um, so success for me will be saying as little as possible and, and helping people through the conversation in, in that way. So to kick things off, I thought it would be useful if everyone who is a guest just said uh, a little bit about themselves. Um, perhaps starting with you, Leah. Hi, everyone. My name is Leah Cantin. It's lovely to be here. I'm a lead analyst at Unity Insights. So formerly the analytical and evaluation department of Cancer Sussex um, Analytical Health Science Network, bit of a mouthful, HSN. Um, so I oversee a number of our analytical and evaluation projects with a bit more of a focus on digital and AI technology, working with uh, different eminence bodies such as IHE or AEC for the AI awards. Thank you, Leah. And Shirin? Um, well, it's my turn to say that I, I'm the imposter because I'm not actually a data analyst. I'm a, I'm, I'm a clinician, but I and AI enthusiast. So I like using um, I like the power of biological or omic data sets and how we can sort of be using that to guide um, the way in which we look after patients. And similarly, that's the reason why I've got interested with health data, um, which we're talking about today, about how we can use that to um, change the way in which we um, look after patients. And I think, you know, the pandemic illustrates how data can be used effectively. So it's just working out that structure now to deploy it in other aspects of health to change things. So that's the reason why I'm here. And that's the reason why I met, found Chris on Twitter. <laughs> I imagine the list of people that found Chris on Twitter is uh, is already long and probably growing. It's great to, <laughs> great to have you, Sharon. Um, Johnny, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. So I'm Johnny Pearson. I'm the lead data scientist in the analytics unit of the Transformation Directorate of NHS England. So another mouthful. Uh, I've got about eight years experience now at NHS England, although it took a couple of years uh, went across to NHSX, uh, the enigma that was, but now we're all merged back together again. So I, I sit in a 
a team of about 25 analysts within uh, national uh, analytical teams, uh, and in particular focus on lots of innovation stuff, lots of data science stuff, um, but uh, also lots of code in the open as well. Fantastic. I mean, part of the reason for getting everyone together is the uh, to bring multiple perspectives to bear on the issues raised in the Goldacre review. And you can see that already just in the backgrounds that you guys have described. And then, Chris, just for people who've not come across you, either through the podcast or, or on Twitter, do you want to say a few words about yourself? Yes, uh, I made the classic mistake. I didn't introduce myself, do I? Which I frequently do, and then I introduce the guest, and then I introduce myself. So I've done the same thing tonight. I'm a bit thrown because there's another host here. Yeah, so I'm Chris Beely. I'm a data scientist. I work in uh, Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. I'm also the co-chair of Technical Advisory Group for NHSR. People who've heard of me have generally think of one or two things, either Shiny, uh, which is a, an open source uh, dashboard implementation for R, or kind of open code and GitHub. And I do quite often kind of be found on Twitter kind of ranting and asking people to share their code and all this kind of thing. And that's my that's my big interest in the Goldacre Review, and that's what I'll obviously be be pushing today. Uh, that's excellent. I should say we didn't meet on Twitter. I met you um, in live ranting mode, um, which was which was how I came to love you. Um, so what what we're going to do is there's obviously there's so much in the review. It is a long, involved, fantastic, detailed, broad review with many many themes and topics raised by it. But we're going to zero in on on four of the themes. And what I'd like to do is just ask each of you to to kind of introduce the theme say a few words about it, maybe your perspective on it as well. And then in, and just invite the um, other members of the panel just to question, to comment, to, to elaborate, really. Johnny, could I get you to start? Maybe you could begin with the topic of um, modern methods for analysis. Yeah, so this um, this is really chapter one of the, the Goldacre Review, um, straight after the executive summary, and it dives into this. And it, I think it does underpin quite a lot of the rest of the review. Um, so the chapter's got this word in it, modernizing, modernizing NHS service analytics. Uh, so modernizing is a bit of an odd word for me because that can mean quite a lot of things. But I think uh, the first thing that I want to point out, and I think the review points out as well, is what it doesn't mean. Um, the chapter makes it quite clear that it, it's not saying the current ways of working are outdated and need a complete revamp. Um, instead, the, the feeling of the chapter is opportunity, uh, which is currently being missed. Now, I get that from two um, particular sentences, two quotes from the chapter. First, it says that there is a, a sense of profession with great potential that is waiting to be unleashed. And second, uh, regarding an individual analysts um, across the NHS who are already doing the work, um, it suggests that they have a feeling that those open components, those modern ways of working, that those analysts often have a feeling of that it's informal and voluntary. And so this idea of there being opportunity and that this work is being done, but it's it's that sort of voluntary added value side of things. I mean, that's my experience um, as well. And that, that rings very true with me. So what is the report saying about what needs to be modernized? Um, well, I've tried to reduce it down into three things. So I think it's suggesting that we need to establish a specific professional path for analysts. We need to increase the um, sharing of knowledge and then to encourage access to the right tools for the right task. And I think these three things cover most, but not all of the, the points in this first chapter. So in terms of the professional path, um, it talks about requiring a professional service um, and putting a whole load of expectations on the service. 
um, as well as having quite a clear set of job descriptions and a clear career path, which is supported by those job descriptions, having various bits of training, which would also support it. I'm really appreciating the analytical skill sets um, above and beyond the standard agenda for change skill set, which is often seen as being more managerial. Uh, it does talk about pay um, pay and agenda for change. I can't really talk about that. You know, everyone love to get more money, but um, about recognizing the value of the skill sets that the NHS both has and needs in the future. So that's the professional path part. I then think the sharing of knowledge, it starts to talk about shared libraries, um, starts to talk about um, having national teams in place that can support with documentation and um, uh, support with getting work uh, reusable. Um, it talks a lot about reproduced analytical pipelines, which um, I don't know if myself or Chris will pick up on later. And then as we come to the, the third one, encouraging access to tooling, there's a few different bits on this, but right at the heart of it is um, the 23rd recommendation, which says uh, the revised NHS IT policy for analysts to ensure it is fit uh, for purpose. And that's all talking about getting um, the right tooling, getting dev environments, getting code first approaches, um, because that then leads to version control. It leads to being able to share easier, being able to have accountability in your workflows and all sorts of great things. So my overall sense is, yeah, this is all excellent news. It's all stuff which I'd really like to see in place. And uh, we should almost I'd, I'd like to see people move past the, is this something which is good and go straight to that? How can we implement it? What are the actual pragmatic side of it? Now, uh, there are a couple of warning comments as well in this chapter. Um, at one point, it compares the um, the progression of NHS analysts to data science progression as an industry and sort of says how over the past 10, 15 years, data science has shut up and yet it implies that in uh, the NHS the analytical service stuff is is not gone at the same rate. But I do think that is misleading because scale is key. Um, the NHS is absolutely massive in the spread of issues, in just the amount of data that we deal with and also the domain knowledge which is needed. It's not a quick application of tools to get some insight out. Instead, it's a... Um, it's incorporating domain-specific intelligence with very long-lived monitoring in order to slowly improve and adjust the Titanic that is the NHS. And we also need to be careful not to get lulled into what I call the best practice or the best tool trap, which is where you, you look at something else, you look at another team, you look at a best practice example, and you think that's the way to be. And therefore, we all need to be like that because the trouble of that trap is that team took a long time to get there and it was iterative and they made mistakes and to try and say everybody should now jump to that point is wrong. Um, so how do we have an iterative process which you know rewards people at different stages and pushes them forwards towards that goal without making them feel completely um, outdated and um, yeah, how, how do we appreciate everybody at different stages as long as they're sort of all moving towards that, that main goal? Thank you, Johnny. Um, that's really, really helpful. There's so much in what you say that actually resonates with uh, life at the strategy units and the way that we uh, have been trying to configure ourselves and, and go about things and develop analysts in uh, in professional ways in exactly the way that you're describing. 
But I wonder what other people think. Shirin, Leah, Chris, was there were there things that Johnny was saying that was um, that were resonating for you? Were there particular things that you want to explore further? Well, for me, it's just recognising the analytical workforce of the NHS. I don't think that's really acknowledged. And I, I, and I must admit, I didn't realise they're pulled together with the secretarial staff, which I think is bananas. Because, <laughs> you know, in any other types of industry, you know, the, the analysts, the data, you know, and the people who handle data and um, visualise and interpret it, you know, they're the most important part of, you know, driving and changing forward industry and you know and it's not it doesn't seem to give the same value within the nhs at the moment so i suppose it's the whole nhs culture that a lot of people do things a lot on goodwill rather than you know so i I think it's just a change in attitude to how we regard that division of people now who are part of you know the way in which we look you know provide health in this country now and then, you know, in terms of standards, um, you know, I know there's talk about, you know, university and stuff like that. But I think there's also standards from, uh, you know, I think people, I think Goldacre refers to it, you know, using the um, um, Office of National Statistics standards uh, and there's the government digital service. There's a load of uh, different acronyms and they're sort of I think they're trying to say standards for this group, you know, for this group of profession or professionals, but I, I don't know how realistic that is. And I'm fairly new to this, you know, culture. So I'm just, you know, as I said, I'm seeing it from an outsider, what bit of information I've seen. Can I pick up on on that goodwill part? Because, yeah, I think that is essential, that there is so many people, every, every analyst that I've met has that goodwill to do more, to, um, yeah, to produce extra things beyond uh, what's sort of expected or what's designed in their job description. Mm-hmm. Now the trouble that we have is is it's not getting those good people in and doing the goodwill stuff. It's then retaining them for long periods of time. Um, why don't we retain people particularly well? Because a there's better opportunities elsewhere, um, but I think b they also get pushed out a bit. Um, and how do they get pushed out? It's because it's not been their work's not been appreciated. They're not being given the the tools, the projects that uh, would appreciate the sort of work that they can do and are doing. And that instead they're being asked to um, spend more and more of their time in meetings and with admin and with all sorts of lovely things that come along with uh, healthcare data. I also wonder if implicit in what you're saying is that there are there are so many things that analysts themselves can do and that the analytical profession itself can do and it can gear up and it can professionalise and so on and so on. But the extent to which analysts get to use their skills and attributes on questions that really matter depends upon people asking good questions. So it also depends on the demand side for, for analysis as well, which throws up a whole range of other issues. Leah, I don't know if you want to come in on any of those points. No, absolutely. I think that point around creating leaders that have the right sort of vision of analytics and, and evaluation, I think, is, is a crucial one that's touched upon in the review in terms of making them able to appreciate the work that the analysts um, do, but also to create a path for progression that isn't just in management for analysts. And I think that's that's something that will also really help with ten- retention in terms of not being asked to relinquish the very skills that we appreciate in order to progress while staying in the NHS. Yeah, and talking about being pushed out as well, I think the other thing that I would say, and it's my own personal feeling, is... 
it can feel very frustrating sometimes. I think there's a lot of people. I because I'm trying to do a set of things. I've identified a set of problems that I think would be helpful to solve, and people agree with me. I haven't done it on my own. And there are lots of sort of bureaucratic slash IT hurdles in front of me in order to clear those. The NHS is just not set up. And it's interesting what Johnny was saying earlier about how comparable it is to compare data science kind of with NHS and elsewhere. I wrestle with that all the time because I tend to look at places like, because uh, someone said we needed a Netflix NHS a little while ago, didn't they? And I think that's a rather stupid thing to say with respect to clinical care. But in terms of what we do, I actually think, you know, clearly we, we are in the data industry you know netflix you know they they invented new sort of algorithms for computing large matrices because they you know they were pushing so they were pushing the bounds of what's even possible and i feel like we've just completely given up on the idea that the nhs could be that type of organization i don't know the nhs is extremely large it contains an, a very 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 large number of analysts and i do think that the amount of ambition that we're not that we would leap to being netflix I feel like the ambition that we actually have in the NHS to, to really be, you know, that kind of company is quite low. And I do kind of wonder, you know, why that is and why people aren't kind of talking us up more, really. If you look at the clinical care in the NHS, which I have to say I've received quite a lot of, um, it's world class. I mean, there's no question it's world class. But when we don't have world class analytics, and I think that's, you know, that's a real shame. Well, can I come in on something slightly technical then, which is... One of the reasons that we don't is, frankly, the NHS isn't focused on business efficiency. Now, it, it certainly likes efficiency, but the the sort of efficiency wins that we can get are much more at the, the drug level than at the, the data flow level. And as data analysts, we, we might disagree with that, but that's that's how we work. If, if you look at other healthcare systems, and I won't particularly name which ones, but some of them are very focused on their efficiency in terms of making sure they have good quality care for good money in good time. But the trouble is that it's that sort of split of three ways, whereas the NHS has always been more patient focused. And what the reason I'm bringing this up is what happens is instead of having a drive to create a particular model, you end up with small pockets, which all start to de develop their patient care with their their data flows. And this is where you end up with you end up with primary care having different data flows to a pass system and multiple different pass systems and multiple different systems within a secondary care, which are all desperately trying to work with each other. But at the same time, their actual priority is just about serving their patients. And so what I'm trying to say is one of the beautiful things about the NHS is it's patient focused, but one of the things which also stops it from doing that sort of full interoperability, let's bring everything together, let's have a really smooth data model is that it's focused on on its patient side. And that sort of, you can never do those big long-term changes quickly because of that. So it's it's almost like the best thing about the NHS is also the thing which sometimes hinders it. Is that true though? You know, because, you know, like in America, they, you know, they're having problems with um, linkage of different systems and legacy systems. You know, they've got the same issues as well, you know, because I think what is the ultimate goal is to link up all health data, whatever health data means within this country. Um, so it moves between, you know, all the, you know, components which are involved in providing health. And, you know, and I think some other countries are more, you know, you know, I, I haven't, you know, I'm not upon the infrastructure or architecture um, of things because I know that drives 
a, a large component of stuff. But, you know, like country, I think Israel's got a very uh, mature digital health system, I think, you know, the way in which they are building, the, the way in which they built their system. And, um, and it's, you know, it's less of, you know, I think this is what everyone said about, you know, um, the NHS and, you know, UK health. And I think it's everywhere as well. You get very much of these sort of silo mentalities, you know, everyone, we're all in our little bunkers doing all our little bits, you know, rather than, you know, everyone joining up. Because we've, we've all got the same common cause. Well, I don't, I don't think we all have the same common cause when it comes to data. I think that there's a, a large proportion of people whose common cause is to make sure that the data is um, as protected for the individual as possible in a certain silo. Mm -hmm. And the idea of linking that up is almost abhorrent. And it's not because they don't like the linking up idea. They'd love to do that, but they just understand that prioritizing the security of the data above that, which, yeah, it's is all part of what the the data ecosystem is it's it's not just the technical solution it's it's also the the legal and the purpose and the usage all together well you've laid out a really nice link into the next topic that we uh wanted to discuss which was data curation sorry Fraser. so could i pick up on a couple of other things if that's all right you go 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 it i will i will get destroyed if i don't Okay. And no one wants to destroy you, Johnny. So in terms of, um, Shireen, you made the point earlier about, um, knowing your workforce. So at the moment, there's something being set up called the analyst, analyst X observatory. And the idea of that is that is a piece of research into the shape, size, and need of health and care analytical workforce. Now, exactly how it's, how it's going to do that in terms of getting people to respond to the surveys, I'm not actually aware myself. But that sort of idea of trying to understand what is our current um, system and what is the need which we would need in the future, that should come through that piece of work. Because there, there was something a while back from the Health Foundation, I think, where they made an estimate of the number of analysts in the NHS at somewhere between 10,000 and then other um, estimates said it was closer to 15,000. But to actually know that, we would need a bit more response. And so we've got that Analyst X Observatory coming along. And then in terms of the professional service that we've been talking about um, and mentoring different frameworks that are going forwards, there's loads of frameworks out there for different um, competencies and different things that you can use. Um, I do really like the DDAT framework uh, that you mentioned earlier. Well, one thing which is going on at the moment is the analytical competency framework, um, which is currently at its beta stage. And that's where um, NHS England has come together with Health Education England, Health Foundation and AFA to try and do a one framework to rule them all. Um, and this is currently in a beta stage of testing. Um, it's trying to relate to that DDAT. Um, it's trying to have um, different sort of flexible ways that it can work. So it's got some core competencies and then some specialisms and then some domain on top of that so that you can have this standardized way of writing job descriptions and talking about our different roles. Um, but you can also still include the flexibility in terms of if people are particularly specialized or if people have that sort of domain knowledge um, around a certain part of the healthcare system. And it's trying to capture that at the moment. Um, so it's gone through alpha. It's, it's at beta testing at the moment. It's been tested across 12 organizations and we should see that uh, coming out in the next um, half year or so. That's fantastic. Thank you, Johnny. And also on the Strategy Unit website, we've got some fantastic resources that are all exactly along the lines that uh, you were describing. 
Leah, I wonder if you could um, just kick us off with our next topic, which is to get us thinking about data curation. Yes, absolutely. So looking at the, the chapter on data curation and management, the starting point of, of what they're developing is around um, the fact that currently there's a lot of uh, data management, data creation that is done in a very ad hoc fashion, very bespoke to different projects, and that um, it's very, it's more often than not, not shared in terms of the methods, uh, the assumption, the limitation, and, and the specific purpose of the analysis, which leads to uh, a lot of duplication of efforts and efficiencies, and then an inability to um, build on work previously done to um, increase standards and, and just enable analysts to do more with, with the time and the resources that they have, uh, which sort of leads to very, very much a, a plea for open standards in terms of them being introduced and used widely. Um, and um, so I think on that point, I think it's, it's um, absolutely, I couldn't agree more with that. I think it, it also brings to the point around probably needing a bit of a shift in, in culture in the way analytics is commissioned currently. Um, and I think we've touched on that a little bit with the last chapter in terms of um, that being at the forefront and not necessarily an afterthought of a bigger transformation project, which is quite often the way analytical think is thought of at the, at the minute, a bit of as a, an add-on to an existing project. So I think uh, it's maybe wanting to keep in mind. Um, and in terms of um, sharing also, I think another point that was a bit of a thought around that uh, was just to maybe think about some of the risk that the, the analyst community see currently to sharing some of the methods that they might be using in terms of uh, potentially people running away with the methods without acknowledging the limitation and the specific purposes of the original analysis. Um, and I don't know if anyone has, has thoughts around that, but I think bringing that reassurance in terms of uh, how that, will, that can be used, how it can be adapted, and what are the, the safety net around some of that being used and extrapolated in a way that's not meant by the original author will be, uh, I'm sure, appreciated by um, a nice community. Um, and then it kind of goes on to talk about two different models in terms of what could be um, uh, what could be desirable in terms of data preparation and management. Um, so thinking about very harmonized data model, uh, but also recognizing that in some cases you will have variation in implementation in environments, and that is just due to the nature of of the data that we um, that we deal with. And I think that was also mentioned by Johnny in terms of uh, compared to other industry where. Um, it's designed to be tracked from the start. Some of the data that we use isn't meant necessarily, it's more made as a, uh, to help clinical practice, but not necessarily to enable further analysis. So recognizing that um, there's some limitation that are built in just due to the nature of the data and what we uh, what was uh, thought of originally. Um, so for that, the proposition is around developing shared portable representation when it comes to data management codes. Um, and so, I think that's, and also really sort of reducing where possible ambiguities and blind spot around clinical coding, um, which I think is, um, is a very good idea. Um, a thought around that would be to, uh, once again, maybe not underestimate the shift in culture it represents and the fact that um, really involvement and in buying from clinician and healthcare professional in general uh, is really critical to be able to uh, get them to lead this change because um, this is likely to change clinical practice, potentially impact clinical outcome. And um, so this really needs to be done hand in hand with, with the system overall. 
and it goes beyond just improving coding for analysis purposes, basically. Um, and then just to complete that sort of overview, um, a number of the recommendations are really around that open standards and being able to um, rely more on reproducible analytical pipeline uh, methodology um, and, and just um, bring some, some more standardization to a number of, of practices um, so you can better um, optimize what, what we have currently in terms of resources and analysts. Thank you, Leah. That's a really helpful overview. And already you can see links back into the topic that we were discussing uh, previously as well. I'll just throw open the floor. Has anyone got any particular comments or questions um, in relation to this topic? Yeah, you mentioned sort of caveats with analytical code and that kind of thing. That is quite a good point, that. I, there is a lot of concern about about that, and I've heard quite often. I think the thing is, like, I mean, the, the the license that's recommended on the current NHSX open source guidance on GitHub, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, is the MIT license. And the MIT license basically says at the end in capital letters, if your computer catches fire, it's your fault. And I think that's, that's it's quite a mission. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in open source and, and NHS, because it's such a clash of cultures. So the MIT license comes from a software-oriented culture, and I'm sort of immersed in that culture now. And we have this idea that if you install something from GitHub and it just is completely wrong and you waste millions of pounds, it, that's, that's your tough luck. Nobody, and that's true of R as well. Nobody is backing R. Nobody's saying this is, you know, I guarantee you, you can sue me. That, that's, that's not happening. But, what, but something else is happening instead, which is arguably as powerful or more powerful, which is that, Everybody can inspect the source code of R. It's being used all over the world, you know, by R and by NASA and all this kind of thing. And so you have this thing in, in open source where it's not so much who's giving you this. Like we have the, in the traditional world, we have like, well, who says it's good? Oh, this person says it's good. This, But we don't really have that. It's more how many people have used it. So the more, you know, the more common something is. So I do occasionally use packages off GitHub for my R analytic code. Um, and I know full well that they could be giving me the wrong answer. And, you know, I accept responsibility for that. And I would never do that if I, if I, you know, if I was sure that it was something very critical and I was sending it to, a, to make a decision, I wouldn't do that. Or I would then, you know, spend the time reading my code. And so I just thought it was just worth picking up that point that actually it's kind of a different world, really. And it's more just, you know, you, you have to validate it based on you and your peer group sort of saying, and we have all these systems in, um, you know, we have cram packages in R, which are, are you know, there's some, there's some supervisory uh, nature in in that area. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think it is a really good point in terms of the, the shift in culture. And and I think speaking to some of my colleagues, also, I think they were really bringing the that sort of um, that it's not really what's happening, and how do you enable analysts to also try something that's different, that's innovative, when quite often they will be um, you know the sort of response that they will have will be miles from that culture of of um, um, something that's that's validated and um, or sorry something that's that's a little bit more um, innovative and just just taking into account that you have multiple iteration in order to build something that's robust and I think that's not something that they're necessarily unable to do currently where um, that license to disagree or to fail or to change um, established approaches. It's not necessarily what they what they face within in the day to day job, uh, where they can be a bit a, a big political weight in terms of some of the analysis and how that's taken on board and how that's um, um, used. So I think 
it, it's a really good point around the shifting culture. And I guess my sort of point back on that would be uh, how to socialize the system a bit more with that, um, because I think there is a, there's also enabling the analysts to do that and then as well enabling their leadership or, or the overall structure to, to work on that in, in a way that makes sense. One thing that I would really like to see in data curation is more transparent pipelines of work. And personally, I don't really understand why we can't be putting um, our code out in terms of, I mean, we'll come to this later in the open coding bit, but in terms of how we have transformed the data, how we've curated the data, um, what uh, sets of um, SNOMED codes we've used to filter by. And this comes down to things like open code lists. So um, Open Safely has some open code lists. Manchester University has a project that also has them. Uh, and they're fantastic resources. And I would love to see more of that sort of thing, more open metadata about data sets and more engineering pipelines, um, which might be really boring and no one might read them, but to have them up and about, it means you've got that transparency, you've got that control over them and anyone else that wants to see what's actually happened to that data, how that data has been curated and brought together, you're able to see it from, from end to end. And it's something I just don't understand why people are hesitant against most of the time. Also in the format patients one, you know, the individual's data who's going into this system, they also have to see what's happening with their data too. And I think that's where we're not serving. I don't think it, it, that's given as much thought at the moment. You know, at the moment it's all been about, uh, you know, a lot of resources have gone into pseudonymization, which maybe is, which is not the right way to do things and, you know, and losing, you know, by making the data so anonymized, you know, and then everyone thinks that's, you know, great, you know, you end up losing a lot of the value in your data by doing that. And that's sort of been a practice, which is, you know, to me seems to get encouraged, you know, rather than looking at, you know, it's sort of saying, you know, looking at perhaps a bit more avant-garde outside the box where doing stuff, um, which is more, you know, perhaps provides a better way of showing how data is moving around and not, you know, which, you know, the analysts understand, uh, clinicians understand, managers understand, and also patients understand. Because I think at the moment patients have no idea what we do with their data. Uh, and then when the stories come out of what, uh, what cock up there's been or what, you know, perceived cock up or the way in which it gets reported, you know, then everyone says, well, why the hell should I share my data? <laughs> Yeah, so that that re for me that's a very important piece which needs to get you know sorted, um, you know, because that will be a foundation, you know, because you need everybody's data, so you won't end up with a biased system, which is one thing I'm worried about is that the people who you know the most, which I think we all know, the most vulnerable aren't represented. One thing I wondered, Shirin, whether you had a perspective on was the point that Leah makes and that is brought out really nicely in the review, which is the purpose of gathering the data being, of course, to record clinical episodes and that in some cases that limiting its use in analytical terms. I just wonder if you had any particular perspectives on that, given your background. I, I, I've got the view, which is the real time analytics of running, you know, you know, the hospital or wherever the providing area is. Um, you know, whether it's a big central thing or whether it's, you know, at edge with the patient. And then, you know, so that's for day-to-day -day provision and, you know, and contingency planning. And then, and then there's the more experimental R&D 
stroke collaboration with industry with what else can we do you know to data mine to provide solutions in a different way you know and that's thinking out you know providing you know the sandbox where people can start using data in a different way but in a safe way which i think we you know haven't cracked yet a different point i'd like to make on data curation is something that i think is slightly missing um i'm not sure it's entirely um the reviews fault it probably wasn't its remit but i have to say it that the review seems to go mostly after tabular ehr data um tabled um, numerical and categorical data and one thing which i think we need to address in the nhs is um that there is a huge range of different modalities of data um and that's not just collecting those modalities and getting the best insight from them individually but also doing multimodality work. So what I mean by that is bringing free text responses alongside um, tabled data or, um, you know, bring some bring some x-rays alongside, let's bring some sounds data in. Yeah, there's not that much of that, but there's all these different modalities of data which are collected in the NHS and they're not often analysed um, and they're definitely not often analysed together. So when you want to start looking at that, you also have to start thinking about different structures that you save and curate the data in. So you can start thinking about um, different representations or um, looking at uh, graph-based representations, so using node and edges rather than rows and columns, that sort of idea. And whilst it's probably not within the Goldacre Reviews remit at all, it's something which we need to be thinking about in the NHS for our data curation, different data formats, different data modalities. That's an excellent point. And I know that's something that we have uh, been looking at and we've used, let's say, for evaluation purposes, that kind of free text uh, notes or patient feedback or whatever it might be. How do we make use of that? And Chris, I know that's been an interest of, of yours for some time in terms of feedback from people. Yeah, I mean, I think text, I always say, is the next big thing, really, or I'm trying to make it the next big thing. I went to a talk last week, actually, and the person was very excited about um, sort of graph analysis which it sounds like that's one of the things that Johnny's talking about I mean and that this comes back to my point about a Netflix NHS really is this is fairly advanced stuff we're talking about isn't it but I, I think it's it's clear that it's actually important and I I think and this is nothing to do with the gold equity this is just me going off on and getting my soapbox out there doesn't seem to be that kind of high level thinking happening outside of places like this podcast or I don't see a clear vision for you know if you look at the likes of spotify and netflix they've, they've built colossally complex and difficult you know they've solved very complex technical problems to get where to where they are and it feels like we're just still arguing about which database we're going to plug into which other database it doesn't feel like we've got that kind of blue sky thinking behind where we're where we're going can i ask a question where where is you know because the I, I have no I, I have no idea the amount of data that the which the uk generates in terms of health you know per annum, um, you know, I don't know whether we're in Zeta by whatever the unit is now, um, you know, is how, you know, it's also, you know, the logistics of, you know, where is all this data going to be stored, you know, and, um, you know, because that's one thing I can't, you know, and then, you know, the, you know, and the type, you know, and then if you want to get sort of quite sophisticated Deploy, you know, deployment of algorithms and stuff like that, or AI development, whatever. You know, you know, then you know, it's you know, what type of computing systems? You know, you know, is it all going to be? You know, we're talking about cloud-based high architecture, or is it all, you know, you know, high-performance 
computer, you know, I, that's the thing which I've, I, I must admit, I don't know why I find that interesting, but I'm just wondering how that system's going, you know, to develop and also, you know, adapt, you know, and also in general, the amount of data we're all generating is, you know, how are we going to sustain it and then, you know, and maintain it and also do it in, a, in you know, because we need to keep our planet healthy um, in a, in a, in a green conscious manner as well because it's you know it's you know a lot of the you know ai stuff is not computationally um is quite rich it's quite heavy so you know how realistic is you know some of this as well you know um i mean that there's prototypes for all these different sorts of things there's some great work um in uh, particularly some of the London trusts, uh, some of the university trusts that um, I've been hearing some great projects and collaborations which really try to push towards some of that. But all, all the while, it's that central strategy, isn't it, of do you have data at source and then you have something which is able to access and share between multiple sources? Or do you bring everything together into one source mm. and then apply it there? And is it a tech solution or is it a strategy solution? Because you know, there's a tech solution in terms of how do you have models that can be applied to such large data efficiently. There's tech solutions about how can you have models which can be applied across a dispersed set of data sources. Um, in a, a private way, and um, but then there's um, it, it's also the the strategy in terms of how can we bring all of that data together and who who controls it, who monitors it, all of that sort of side of things. Um, I mean, those strategies are slowly being brought out, but uh, as you say, it's not quite that Spotify level um, or Netflix level of. Because basically they have an event-based log and they're able to bring it together and say, let's apply a massive algorithm to that and make it really efficient. Um, we seem to have this this awkward strategy point, which we need to resolve first. Of, is it a central or is it a dispersed uh, data collection? I think what's really interesting with the review is that it's really um, internal to the NHS. I think another perspective is just bringing um, organization, arm length body, life science and and uh, organizations that do a lot around analytics but are outside of that um, NHS environment and just thinking of um, what is described in the review is, is most often a very uh, ideal case in terms of patient level data that is linked between primary care and secondary care um, when quite often um, that large sector is working with aggregated data where uh, things like demographic measure are just like gold dust really. Um, so I think maybe an, another point for development is just thinking around the additional challenges that they encounter and, and the sort of inefficiency in terms of uh, the IG process that we're just mentioning and, and the fact that they have to go through that multiple times uh, for very specific purpose, which sometimes also um, limits the, the way they can share some of the outputs um, and how that fits into that open standard uh, picture that we want to create. Well, there's a good link to the uh, topic of trusted research environments, um, which Shirin, uh, I know you're going to to take us through. So maybe just um, just introduce that topic for us. Well, from what I can work out, and you know, and, and as I said, I've only just been you know sporadically listening or looking at what's been happening. You know, I think there's been some discussion over the past few years about having these data secure havens and i think it's you know they've given it now the name of a trusted research environment and from what 
I can understand it. It's, you know, they want, you know, the aim is to have sort of a common portal where people can enter uh, and it has, a, you know, central information governance where you can then go and look at um, a curated uh, health data sets, which you can then within the trusted research environment, so the data is not moving outside that environment, you can then, uh, you know, model it or, you know, or, you know, or train it, you know, AI on it, um, or just do some, um, you know, basic um, analytics to see, you know, which is what's been ha happening with um, co co COVID data, um, and you know, but the but where these data curated sets are sitting, there's I think there's a number of organisations within the UK which have been I think it's, they've got sort of certain technical standards which you have to fulfil, and then they're characterised as a trusted research environment and I think the aim is to try and keep that as minimal you know to a minimal number but it's still you know it's still there's limitations on what data is being put into those sites it doesn't seem very fluid um, I think it's just you know you know and I'm just wondering whether you know the, the other you know whether that's the best format because you know it's what what do we really want the trusted research environment to be? Is it going to be you know, the sandbox where you can experiment with data and ask questions of the data? Um, or is it a place where the government wants to be popping in to see what or, or, or everyone, you know, what's happening with the health system in the UK? Because again, everyone's doing, you know, you know, it's amazing the amount of limitations there are of just, you know, on a day-to-day -day running of hospitals within one uh, trust. It's not that easy to move data around because there's so much information government. So I think the aim is to try and streamline the whole process. The public, for me, the public have to be involved a lot more in how their data is getting used. And I think everyone is just so, you know, the way everyone interacts with the web and stuff like that, no one gives toss about the data but you know in that environment but when it comes to the health system or health data is suddenly people you know people you know i think people don't understand it and i think that's the reason why people get defensive about it and i think you know it's what for you know and we don't necessarily need to have an it, it I, I don't know this is something which you know perhaps everyone can you know discuss because as i said i'm you know i'm a bit hit and miss on what i know is you know maybe we're you know better off actually just using synthetic data within us you know these you know uh, trusted research environments you know rather than having to use real time patient data which can stay perhaps within the trust which is then used for the day-to-day -day running of the service the point about trust is a is a wonderful one, and I know in a previous uh, NHSR podcast, Jess Morley, again a link to the Goldacre Review, uh, talked really eloquently about trust and the sources of trust and um, and how it might be generated and where it might come from. And she makes a really good point about not borrowing trust from the NHS brand because it is trusted in the round, not borrowing trust from that, but creating it particularly and, and being very uh, concrete and very specific in in the case that you're addressing to build trust around it. And I guess that's a, a really big point when we're, when we're talking about this. Yeah, I, I must admit, I've got interest, and I don't know, again, it comes down to, you know, realistic being able to deploy it, you know, is, um, was it distributed um, um, health-led, um, Oh, it's blockchain basically so you, you keep it you know so the individual um you know so it's a ledger and then that individual whose data it is they can see where it's going or who's using it who's accessing it and you know maybe that's a way um you know it can 
you know, and I think some people have talked about tokenizing um, health data, you know, so it gets people more engaged with their data and the way in which it gets used within the system and what benefits can come from using um, their data in that way. So it, it, those are things which I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, been thinking about. Yeah, trust. It's fascinating because um, I heard of a clinical trial where they they did the trial, but then they wanted to use the data for research purposes afterwards. And so they went back to the trial and they said, can we use your data for this? I believe it was uh, to do with, um, uh, it was a heart study of some form, I forget what, but everybody was, of course, yeah, use the data for that. That sounds great. I really want you to use my data for that. Because as you said, Shri, they understood what it was that was going to be used. But then that sort of generic where your data just disappears off into the ether and you don't quite know and what someone it. else controls it as well, you know, and there's so many little hierarchies and, you know, you know, it's, it's, I find it amazing. It's worse than Kafka, you know. We do, we do talk all about uh, the... The patient has, you know, the patient has control of the data. No, it's actually, it's the data controller that owns the data. Um, and they they own it on behalf of the patient. And they're, they're legally mandated to do that. But as you say, it's still someone else that has control at the end of the day. The um, On the interesting Transformation Directorate, um, there's some documentation about secure data environments, which is just the term which is used um is England for trusted research environments. It encompasses them and some some others as well. Um, so there's some sort of light guidance there. Uh, and then there's the the upcoming secure data environment policy on gov.uk as well. I should just get those two links uh, in the show notes for us. Yeah, there's been, a lot, I think Jess has pointed this out, there's been a lot written on data uh, and lots of new acronyms getting introduced and things like that. So it's sometimes difficult to keep, you know, track even if you're paying attention i really like your tokenized point um because the way that the sdes and the tres are being designed is around the five safes from ons Mm. which are very good principles but at the same time you are saying well i put my trust in these five safes i suppose whereas that idea of really being able to monitor and see your data um is a fascinating one i mean Technically, it would be quite computation expensive, but to have a, a an encrypted API call, which essentially sends something back to your individual record every time that your token is accessed or used, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that, that I think that that could be a nice way. But as I said, I, I I don't know about the deployment and the, the compute at the moment. You know, with um, though there's lots of check. You know, they're doing a lot of development of blockchain code to make it greener and stuff like that and more efficient but you know i don't know you know how fast that will develop and whether that will be something realistic to deploy but anyway yeah chris do you have any perspectives on this topic well something else that sherry mentioned which i thought was quite interesting was what what are tre's for and are they for kind of performance management there's quite a lot in the gold Acre review about that subject and it's obviously working in a provider trust it's quite close to my heart I think there seems to my impression is that we're actually wrestling as a you know as a as a community. There seems to be one side of people who think that TREs are just for research, and I wonder whether the Goldacre review maybe reads a little bit like that. I don't know. I didn't read it that way, but I've seen to have met people who have read it that way. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about how people don't, and it also relates to the way that patients feel about their data being used as well. So staff don't really like 
the data to be used for performance management as a rule. With some exceptions, on the whole, people don't like to be performance managed. They don't like to be put in league tables. They don't like to be assessed. And you know, all this, and you see this. It's not just healthcare. It's across you know teaching and, and all these sorts of industries. But as a patient, and again, I speak as a patient who consumes massive amounts of healthcare all the time. I, f- I feel like I do want that. I do want my data to be used, not to kind of you know dr- drum doctors out of town or but just to have some idea about you know this service is performing better than this service or if this service was 10 miles further this way it would help or you know that kind of thing seems a very natural thing to use the data for i think that if we use tres more not for research but a coalface analytical level it would allow us to answer a lot of interesting questions rapidly a because they would have obviously all the ig stuff that they're designed for but b just because Presumably, the data model will be simplified. Now, I don't understand how we get from where we are now, which just seems like complete chaos, to there. I don't know what the middle section is, but there are people who apparently think it's possible. And I would love to be able to sit in my trust and interact with a data set that relates to, say, Nottinghamshire and just understand how people are, how often we see them. You know, just basic questions. I don't need row-level data. And, you know, we ask ourselves questions like this all the time, and we actually can't answer them. So I really am trying to push wherever I can the idea that TREs are should be a critical part of our whole infrastructure, really, and how useful they'd be just to know. I mean, I'm not doing anything. Com- I'm not like a fancy data scientist. I'm not doing anything complicated, just answering simple questions about how things are. I absolutely agree. I think there would be such a massive improvement to, you know, providing help to decision making. So the work that we're doing now, but with data that is sometimes so much more limited. So I think that there would be a massive improvement and I think that's also something to maybe socialize a bit more in terms of what's actually accessible by who currently because I think maybe there's a bit of that myth around how easy it is to get some of the data how um, how widely it's used uh, but a, a number of trusts are um, very prudent in their approach really which is, is driven by having the patient interests at heart, which, which is the right way to look at it. But that also means that in terms of some of the, the opportunities and some of ans- answering some of those simple questions or providing the be- best tool for decision-making, a number of organisations are actually quite limited in what they do. So I think, yeah, there will be a, a massive improvement for sure. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I sit in quite a few hours of talking about TREs and things, and there's, it's there's so much wrestling in the room around how to make sure that the infrastructure is set up correctly, how to make sure that the the trust is there, that the uh, the messaging is clear and people know how to use it. Great. However, the thing which is missed because it's sort of what Chris was saying about how to get from here to there, and it's almost like there's steps and the first three steps are being addressed, but not like step six, seven, eight. And the trouble with that is we need to address those because step six, seven, and eight in my head, just making up those numbers, are the use. It's actually how someone comes and uses it. It's not how someone accesses it. It's once you're in there, how do you, from a data scientist's point of view, how do you set up the right environment that you can come back to time and time again and will apply a, a reasonable, flexible set of tooling to the data? How do you get those results out? Because, okay, so open safely is a, this, this great framework for remote analysis. But even so, trying to get a result out the end of it still has an IG process, and that's a lengthy IG process. So you can get the results quite quickly, but there's still actually getting something out so the usage 
how we then share the insights that we get, how we then make sure it's reusable across multiple different TRVs. So a piece of code applied for some comorbidity work over there can also be applied with minimum level of tweaking to a different TRV. These are steps six, seven, and eight, which do need to be addressed. And the only way they get addressed is if we start to feed into these conversations. I do agree with that, but I would like to say in a universe where there are three TREs and all the code written on them is completely not interoperable at all and we have to rewrite the code from scratch three times, that's way better than what we have now, which is how many different code sets are there across the whole country for NHS data? Maybe a thousand? So if you want me to sign up on a dotted line, it's three and no fewer, then I would absolutely accept that. Dividing analytical workforce into three is, yeah, that's good for me. Chris, do you want to move us on to talk about the the final topic in the review, which is um, which is about open methods? And again, it's something that's very close to the the strategy unit heart, and I, and I know it's something that you've been pushing for a, for a very long time, very effectively. So presumably, you were delighted when the review came out in in the way that it came out, talking uh, so strongly about open methods. So just say just introduce that topic, say a little bit about uh, how you think about it, and how you think the reviewers uh, helped or hindered that cause. Yes. Well, I do just want to say, actually, the, the, the first thing, well, I suppose I already said this on the Jess Morley podcast, which is I think the Gold Lake Review is, is brilliant, brilliantly eloquent. It's not a technical document. It actually describes the problems in analytics really well. And I, I thoroughly recommend it to non-technical people because it's got a lot of really useful explanations of stuff I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to, trying to explain to people who are not technical. It's actually all in there. So I can't emphasize enough that if you're reading this, you're hearing this, sorry, and you're not very technical, don't be put off. I can, I can, if you want to understand what's happening, I can thoroughly recommend it. Right. With all that said, and I also love the open working chapter. I love everything about it. I think, to be honest, let's see. Um, It starts with myths, which is brilliant. And I've encountered all of those myths and more. There's a lot of myths in open source. I say this a lot. I'd be really interested to do a PhD on where they all come from. There's a lot of kind of hearsay. The classic example being, and I think this myth actually is true, but I just don't know where it came from. It's one of those kind of, it doesn't seem to have any kind of source, but it seems to just just perpetuate itself anyway, which is that we can't share analytic code that implies proprietary databases because of uh, intellectual property. That, whether it's true or not, that has propagated, but I can't find a single source that says either we can or we can't. So it's just one of those kind of things that people just say. What other myths are there in there? There's this idea that you can't, that open methods are not compatible with commercial products, are not com- compatible with people getting paid, which is not true at all. You can use proprietary software and share the code that you write on that proprietary software, like, for example, Stata code. And also that when open source means that no one's getting paid, I think that's a really big problem is that when people think about open source, they think about free and that's not really what it means. And indeed, it says later on that we should be, NHS should be procuring stuff. It should be procuring code, paying for code that's open. And that's a real, I think that's something that that people, again, non-technical people really don't understand is that you can buy code that's open. And in fact, I've done it myself. I've bought code, only a very small thing that was MIT licensed and then and I can do what I like with it. And that's what we should be doing. And that's what it says in the Golden Acre Review. This should be absolutely boilerplate. Something that I like about the Golden Acre Review that it cuts all the way through it is this idea of defaults. And defaults, I think, is an idea from the world of, of sort of technologies that you always have to have good defaults. For example, all the R functions are supposed to have good defaults. So things should default to open. And there should be all, if there are exceptions, and it's the same with, if you look at the civil service guidance on open code, it's the same. They don't open absolutely every single line of code that they write. However, every time they don't open a line of code, they can tell you why. 
And that, I think, is a transformative change, really. Once you're justifying, because at the moment, I mean, I've been fighting this battle for, for quite a long time. It's really the other way around. You have to fight to say why the code should be open. And in that opinion, that's completely, utterly wrongheaded. So, and the last thing, again, which is, again, another canard, which I've encountered many times, is this idea that when you open your code, you open everything. You open your results, you open your data, you just throw the doors open, which is obviously completely false. So, not only do you not have to share the data, of course you don't have to share the data, some of it's extremely personal, but you don't even have to share the results. You don't even have to share what you found. You don't have to share the graph. You don't have to share anything. You just have to share what you did, like the metrics and when we were talking earlier, I was thinking about how the NHS, again, it's a clash of cultures thing. The NHS, I mean, I, I love the NHS. I use it all the time. And I, I mean, I've always worked in the NHS and never wanted to do anything else, but it can be quite secretive. People in the NHS like to do things behind closed doors. I think that's a cultural thing. And this applies to, they don't want to show you the way they computed the metric because actually, you know, kind of, if they make a mistake in six months, they can kind of walk it back and not, whereas if they've published it all openly, they can't really do that. And that's very natural and very human. I just don't want to share you know, they don't want to have their heads on the chopping block. Analysts don't want to share their code because it's worried that they're wrong. I totally get that. Uh, and I understand it from a personal level, but I think organization, we have to push out and say, no, this is not good enough. You're working. This is taxpayers' money. It's taxpayers' time. This is a life or death service. That's the other thing about Netflix. They're spending all this money to recommend us films that we like. Well, who cares whether you watch a film that you like? Just, you know, like get a magazine about films. This is healthcare. This is really important. And this is why I want to do it. Anyway, sorry, I'm going into ramp mode. Aren't I? This is what I knew would happen, which is why I got Fraser along. So it mentions rap as well, uh, as Johnny briefly touched on. And I've been going, that's something, another battle I've been fighting for a long time. They're sort of, it's sort of kin to open. It, it overlaps slightly. But yeah, basically, you know, having a reproducible identical pipeline is, is all about, A, making it reusable for the sake of efficiency, which obviously should be important in a taxpayer-funded system, and also, again, open for reuse and and inspection and and all this kind of thing, and that's really, really important. And also, of course, being version-controlled. So technical people who use Git will understand that when you use Git, there's a thing, I love it, it's called Git blame, and it's such a brilliant expression. And what it does is it shows you who wrote every single line of code. So if you've got a repo with 10 people working on it, and someone makes a mistake, then you can you can get blame in a very literal sense and say, aha, it was you on line 17, you changed that bracket round, then the whole thing broke. And again, it's very natural not to want to work in that way, but we, we have to get this right. So yes, yeah, so there's loads of recommendations at the end. And as I say, basically it boils down to, we should default to open, we should default to producing open, we should default to procuring open. And also, and some of this relates to stuff that Johnny was saying about, we need to have this sort of national infrastructure to support this. And I've always been baffled as to why this doesn't exist, again, in such a massive you know, organization. Where are the people? I mean, obviously, like Johnny's doing this a bit, but he's not, not in the big expensive way that it should be done. Where are the people just going out and reading repos and helping people and supporting and, you know, writing libraries occasionally? Say, well, we can see the NHS doesn't have a RAP compliant demand and capacity library, which I was having a meeting about this morning. Basically, we're all just going to have to do it in our spare time as if it's not important. You know, where are these people going out and, you know, producing guidance and supporting and all this kind of thing? And there's a couple of other things that I think are very useful. There's a thing about the prevalence of code sharing, which very graphically illustrates just how rare it is. So they go through quite a lot of things where you might expect there to be a decent amount of open code, and there isn't really. They talk about what uh, something that I really love called pseudo-open working, where people champion the ideas of open working and say how wonderful it is, but then don't do it themselves. And I've seen this many times. I'm clearly not going to name names, but perhaps they'll hear this and know who they are. 
Um, I've seen a lot of that. Big companies do it as well. I correspond with a lot of kind of data science consultancies. When you go to the webinar and put your hand up and say, is the code available? They say yes. Then you still email them about it six months later. And the last thing, which is not the Goldacre report, which is just something that I always say, which I think is relevant, which is just that doing this is, is actually, as much as I love it and promote it, it's actually really hard. And I think we found this during COVID is that overnight we realized that we were facing this common enemy and we needed to share and cooperate. And actually it turns out that that's actually pretty hard. So just the, at the very basic level, using Git and GitHub is not something that you, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not trying to put anybody off, but it requires someone to sit you down and talk you through it and, you know, go through the basics. And NHSR, just to give a plug to NHSR, is doing that all the time. Writing stuff generically so other people can use it. I see loads of code that does one thing excellently well, but it's not generalizable at all. I mean, it's just, it's just like 2,000 lines, and you're just looking, and you think there's no way. So I think it's great that they shared it. And it's interesting to see what they did, and that's really important. But actually, you can't pick it up and use it yourself, and that's a big limitation because writing code like that is hard, and we don't talk about that enough. And the last thing I want to say is the thing that's even more hard, which is what, again, in terms of ambition, what we should be aiming at, and the example I always give is Linux. Linux was built by just a load of random people just turning up on the internet and having a go, and that's what we should be doing. We should be collaboratively, cross-organizationally, just building stuff, just building tools that are useful, identifying a need, not having necessarily funding, not having, you know, committees of oversight or as much as they have their place on other projects. But there's no reason whatsoever why me and three other people in three other trusts can just get together, bang something together and publish it. And that's incredibly difficult to have the visibility and the community and the skills and, you know, all that to coalesce. And yet it's being done every day across the rest of the technology industry. And it runs the whole internet. That, that anarchic collaborative spirit is, I mean, it went to Mars, it, it, you know, it, and I, why we can't harness it in a, in a taxpayer funded, that's the, a big irony again. Facebook, they share their code all day, no problem. But the NHS, which is supposed to be this really kind of like cuddly, sweet, safe thing that we all love, actually can be very secretive and difficult and bureaucratic and awkward. When, even when you're inside it, I can't imagine what it would be like standing outside the NHS and asking for code. I guess I would probably get even even less back. Thank you, Chris. I just want to endorse the point you made at the outset, which is how useful the Goldacre Review is at, at bringing us non-technical specialists into the world that you're inhabiting and describing it is really helpful, including the translation of terms like git blaming, which I understand in non-technical terms. Uh, I didn't know there was a technical uh, use for it. There are, you know, it sounds hard and it sounds as though there are downsides in terms of open working and open methods and all the rest of it. I just wanted to point out the downsides of not doing that. And, you know, we will all have our favourite example of big service decisions taken on the basis of analysis, the, the inner workings of which no one knows were, were completely opaque. There's a lot to go at in the way that you've set it out. I just wonder what people thought of what Chris set out. I agree. I'm, I'm, I must admit, I agree with of, a lot of what Chris has said, actually. I, I think, and I, you know, I think for me, the issue is, you know, how are we going to change stuff? You know, I, you know it's like to bring back, you know, I don't know constructive anarchy. You know, so we get that, you know, that, you know, we truly get this sort of this open, open health system, um, which everyone understands and can interact with it in a way that is right for them. You know, and at the moment, I think it's just there is a heck of a lot being written about it and a lot of rules and, and regulations and perhaps going to its core is just people who are actually going to write things, the code 
because that that's where it's all going to start is it not and the data that you know there's a lot of missing you know the data in the nhs i know everyone says there's a legacy data system but you know a lot there is a lot of missing data and inaccuracies in it which you know you so that needs to be taken account of as well but you know but i think you know a lot of things you know during the covid period i think a lot of things got deployed and, we, and an idea of how things can be developed so you know hopefully some of those principles will carry on it's just it does feel like everything's getting a bit more fragmented now we don't have to, you know because we don't seem to have this common cause at the moment it seems like everyone's on their own missions but you know that that's my handle on it um not not very technical but um yeah there you go no it's, it's similarly i i agree i think it's you know it's um it's definitely something to to work on and I guess I had like two thoughts or questions for for everyone so the first one in terms of you know what you mentioned Chris in terms of some of the the code being very bespoke and doing something really well but being very hard to generalize for for big analysis do you think there's there's a part of that in your experience that is around uh, you know elements just like of having different headers for the same data set or um, you know updates to um, to how things are recorded that are not necessarily um, shared in in the best way to enable uh, people to just update all the code at once and things like that and you know a new update and everything breaks. Do you think there's an element of that where you'd you'd want to bring some of the things back to the system and say can we can we have a different standard or can we can we just agree on formats uh, a, a bit more to just enable some of that work um, and then a second thought around. I think we all agree that uh, this is something hugely important and, and, and that's going to help a lot with, with analytics. But do you feel like there's some elements that could be put in place first in terms of recommendation that may be a bit more of like quick wins? Or do you feel like everything is a bit more fundamental change that needs to happen uh, and to, to make sure we understand interdependency between different organisations that can actually enable us to, to put that in place? Yeah, I think the big problem. I think there is. A, I think there is a quick win, and that is this default assumption of publishing code. I think the problem that I see now is we've gone from uh, people didn't write code at all. So obviously, we, we you know we're, we're moving into this world. In days gone by, people just used to grind stuff out in Excel, but we're moving more and more to a code type environment now, uh, and that's great. And they're sharing the code, and that's also great. But the next step that I see is that people need to write for their audience. I think that's the culture that's lacking. So they write code, and I write code like this. I'm not, you know, it's not. I'm not saying that I'm I'm innocent of this. They write code that works for them. What they don't do is write, uh, you know, is properly factorize it. They don't write proper documentation. They don't take any account whatsoever of the fact that somebody is. They just put it on GitHub and then forget about it. And they're actually, to be to be honest with you, there are some pretty big funded open source projects that, that get a lot of this really basic stuff wrong and quite honestly sometimes i get a bit upset about that because i feel they should be leading the way that you know they, these are funded projects and they're not and that's the thing that i always think about is i think people need to do open right there's this idea i think particularly with non-technical people that to open source your code you just take the code you already wrote and bang it on the internet and although that's helpful, it's nowhere near as far as where we want to get to. And that's what I'm always trying to remind people is that actually writing beautifully factorized, documented, you know, code, that's, that, that's, the, that's the end goal. But as I say, it's not, you know, it's harder. My team actually loves open code. Um, and we, 
are trying to push in this area as much as possible. So trying to do open code uh, in GitHub as much as possible that is um, modular in different forms and that we're starting to address the end user. But the reason for saying this is the point I want to make is um, it's iterative still. And again, it's that point I made right at the start that, yes, we want to be encouraging people to be writing full code for their end user with documentation. But at the same time, push for that, but don't wait for it. Start iterating, start doing the middle steps as well. Um, and all the time, keep improving yourself. Uh, so wrap is quite a good thing for this in terms of wrap actually is a huge, different, huge broader range of stuff where you can start off with just creating code which can be reproduced on a different input but then you can have code which can be reproduced on different architectures a gpu or cpu and uh, then you could have code which could actually be applied to an entirely different uh, situation so this is for cardiac data and this is for ophthalmology data and then then you get to the big stuff where you start to actually have full pipelines where you, you start to say, okay, this is a full engineering pipeline where we have ingestion uh, and then it's transformed and then it's, and it's using different clouds and it's got no vendor lock-in and, and you can end up with a huge product. And that is so valuable when you get to it. But again, to get to that, to say to an organization, you need to be making full reproducible analytical pipelines with a full data engineering structure it is an exceptional, difficult task. And so just to encourage, we, we need to be seeing those intermediate steps for that as well. Um, and we've got a few of those examples up. If you if you want to have a look at examples, then do look at uh, the old NHSX GitHub, which has some of those on it. Fantastic. I want to bring us to a bit of a close now, but I just wonder, given everything that we've discussed across the four topics uh, that we've considered, whether you have any final thoughts or whether there's anything that we've not covered that you would like to add in that really struck you from the review. Leah, perhaps you'd kick us off. Yeah, sure. I think for me, the, the sort of main takeaway in and just being able to have the review shedding lights on the great work, but also the, the missed opportunity because of the lack of recognition in terms of some of the work that the analysts and analysts do. I think it's probably, um, you know, very satisfying just thinking of just all the potential that is there. Um, so, you know, a lot of challenges that we've mentioned throughout the, this episode, but just um, giving more light to the work that's done, to the opportunities, to the pocket of excellence, to the initiatives that are currently you know, doing a lot of things outside of the day job to try and improve some of what we've mentioned, some of the issues we mentioned, I think is a, is an amazing outcome. So just more to build on, but yeah, very exciting. It's partly that story of opportunity that Johnny was outlining right at the start. So Johnny, perhaps you've got a final thought. So I was thinking um, it's mostly around the open, but all of these subjects, um, the thing which I enjoy most about my job is the open collaboration. Um, it's been able to put code up on GitHub um, and talk to other people about it. It's been able to showcase our work um, and that comes through all of these different parts, through being able to access different data, through being able to share with each other and through being able to really appreciate that we do do some fantastic work. It's just locked away. Mm. And Shirin, speaking of, <laughs> this is the, what Johnny is describing is the, is the kind of the basis of science, isn't it? This openness, this collaboration. Do you have any final thoughts? I I, I love the prince, um, fair principles, which I think have been alluded alluded to, you know, and, and I, you know, which is find findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable data. So I think we, you know, you know, because I think we're at a point where if we can get everything right, you know, we can get the system 
it gives me you know it's a self-learning system where it'll just keep running itself and then you know and become more more autonomous but you know that's perhaps a bit too abstract but i think i think you know I, i'm optimistic and I, I think there's a lot of there's so much hidden good stuff which is going on at the moment you know and i, I'm, I you know i must admit you know it's like sweet you know it's like a sweet shop there's lots of amazing you know things that i can see which are happening now at the moment um you know and a, a lot and then lots and lots of people in different aspects you know within you know because you know the uh what's it the world health organization they're doing a lot of stuff on how you know you know, countries with less wealth are, you know, mag- managing their health data and doing, you know, deployment of health tech and stuff like that. So, it's, you know, I think everyone is moving towards this approach to dealing with things and, you know, and hopefully we all learn off each other. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, but I, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, I think this is fantastic. So thanks for the invite, Chris. For, for me, you've touched upon uh, a, perhaps a hidden theme in the conversation and, and something I would say is a tension in the review, which is that many of the things that the review points at and that we have pointed at and say, that's good, we need more of that, that's good, we need more of that. The thing that has made it work has been a, um, a sort of self-starting pioneer type spirit. It hasn't been imposed from the top. It hasn't been supported bureaucratically. And I wonder if the, the sort of dead hand of codification might actually be unhelpful. In, in advancing some of what the, the review wants to advance. Um, but Chris, I want to hand over to you and say, you know, are there any final points that you would like to make? Uh, and also to say thank you for inviting me in, allowing an interloper into your world to help you to host the podcast. Yes, thanks. Well, you're an excellent interloper. So that's why, that's why I invited you along. Yes, so I, I do agree. I think that we, what we've been talking about basically today, I would summarise as that I want to see more ambition that's what i've been talking about but johnny's right we need to celebrate the achievements that we already have i think that's the other thing is that having people publishing code however interoperable or reusable it is 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 definitely good and you gave me a perfect segue there phrase and i completely lost it because i didn't say it first which i should have done so never mind um which is you're talking about kind of grassroots um you know and all that kind of thing and i should give a plug for the nhsr community which is mentioned many many times i think 15 times i count i think i counted i think it was 15 as being a good example of a kind of upstart kind of grassroots led uh, collaborative i'll also give a, a name check to our friends over in nhs pycom who are very much our sort of kin in this uh, struggle and yeah it just goes to show uh, kind of what you can achieve uh, with everything that's gone in to date okay i'll wrap it up there then so um thanks to all the guests for coming um i will give my usual thanks to tom Jemmett. It's been, we've been a little bit all over the place today, so he has got a little bit of an edit to do, so I'm sure it'll come out beautifully. So thank you, Tom. Um, if you do have questions or comments about the uh, thing, I'd love to hear them. I've actually written the email address down this time. It's nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net. So do drop us a line and do drop us a line any questions as well, because I think we might have a technical special with someone that knows what they're talking about soon. So if you've got any questions about R or even Python, uh, then do send them along. And uh, with all that, I'll say thanks again to the guests and we'll see you next time.